Hey, good morning, everyone. You can find your seats. As you're finding them, uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is Will Weatherhead. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to work specifically with the young adults of Crossroads. Um, And I know that we already mentioned it once, but I was struck this week when my little brother, who's a sophomore at MSU, had to move back to Lansing. So again, let's see hands of college students in this place that maybe are coming back to Grand Rapids. Yeah, so some of you cheer about that. For the rest of us who aren't in school, we dread that because what it means is that summer is over. Even though we're having the hottest weeks imaginable, summer is really over. I'm sorry. Labor Day this weekend. I'm sorry. But I will use this opportunity for a shameless plug for the Crossroads Young Adult Ministry. If you're between the ages of 18 and mid-30s, and you're looking for a place to come in contact with like-minded individuals, to come and worship, to study the Bible in small groups, we would love to have you. We meet on Wednesday nights uh, here at the church from 7 to 9. You're all welcome. And that reminds me that I forgot to say something. How many of you know who Max Garter is? Have you, have you met Max? You need to meet Max. Max is our new youth pastor. He's super excited about working at Crossroads. And talking about college students reminded me that he is really in need of some small group leaders for the uh, junior high and the high school group. And so, again, if you're looking for something to do this fall to, to give your life away, that would be a great opportunity. I'm sure he'll be here between services. You can look for him and talk to him. Okay, well, uh, this summer... We've been going through the books of the Bible known as the wisdom literature. And these books that show interest in the way that the world works and books that uh, really have to do with humanity's role in the way that the world works. And I'm a little bit interesting. I'm different than most people. When I think of the books known as wisdom literature, I think, wait, hold on. What, What makes the wisdom found in these books different than the wisdom found in Mark or the Wisdom found in the book of Philippians. Isn't the Bible meant to be God's wisdom for mankind? And obviously you would answer yes to that, and I would agree with you. Yes, God's word is wisdom for us, and we need to be reading it uh, daily and looking for things to apply to our lives. But the scriptures that are categorized as wisdom literature, they have a different aim than, say, the gospels. I think you all know that the Gospels, they're aimed at showing God's Messiah. They're aimed at a people who know the history of the Jews. And they're looking forward to the redemption of God's chosen people. Their their aim is to say, this Jesus, this man, is God. He's the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that you've been looking for, the king, the one who will set the people free. The aim of wisdom literature is a little bit different. The books of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Song of Songs. They aim at helping people of God navigate life in a way that would be pleasing to him. If you're having questions about what that looks like, these are the books that we should be running to. They're full of real time-tested truths that are passed down from generation to generation. And these specific truths focus on something. They focus on, maybe we can call it the art of godly living. 
It's more than advice. It's more than just an old man saying to a younger man, hey, if you're ever in Jerusalem in the dead heat of summer, you're going to want to stay away from the water at the Sheep Gate well. Don't drink that water. Right? It's more than that. That might be wise, but it's not helping someone who's, who's journeying toward God and journeying towards uh, having their life be pleasing to him. These books are a real grace to us because they communicate, again, applicable wisdom that's also the sovereign truth of God. It's more precious than anything. And the reason I give all this background and context is because today we're going to be looking at the last book of our wisdom literature series. And as we crack open our Bibles, I know there's going to be some mixed feelings and some mixed understandings about the text. There's going to be preconceived notions that we all have. And I just want to say that I'm okay with that. I hope you're okay with that too. I'm not trying to figure everything out this morning. But something that we need to be on board with before we jump into it is this. What we're reading is the Word of God. It's inspired by Him. And it's extremely useful as wisdom to our lives. Can you agree with me on that? So open your Bibles to the Song of Songs. We're going to read all of chapter 1 and through verse 7 of chapter 2. And as you find it, you can stand. If you need a Bible, a couple guys pass out some Bibles maybe. If you have a blue one, it's on page 547. Again, stand for the reading of God's word, please. I don't know how I get texts like this, but... All right, the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the women, the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine and how rightly they adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where your flocks, where you graze your flocks and where your sheep where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flock of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. 
Uh, Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples for I'm faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is God's word. You can have a seat. (laughs) Okay, where do we begin with this, right? I found that in the last couple of weeks as I've been studying that a lot of people have a lot to say about this little book of the Bible. And if I'm completely honest, not very much of it was encouraging and helpful to me. Listen to some of these uh, quotes. The Song of Songs is like a lock to which the key has been lost. The song is the most obscure book in the Old Testament. Whatever principle of interpretation one may adopt, there always remains a number of inexplicable passages. Scholars, they vary widely on nearly every part of its interpretation. Virtually every verse presents challenges in text, philosophy, image, grammar, and structure. And by far my favorite, a Christian preacher named Adam Clark counseled pastors in the 1820s by saying, I advise, I advise young preachers to avoid preaching on Solomon's song, period. <laughs> Rabbis wouldn't let their students read this book of the Bible until they were 30 years old. I'm 28. And so you can imagine as I was preparing for this, there's just tons of wind in my sails. I was super excited and encouraged for this morning. Really though, these things caught me off guard and um, they left me thinking about the role of our Bibles, the role of the Bible for Christians. Is it something that you need years and years of experience with? Is it something that you need degree after degree hanging on the wall to be able to understand? Or is it written for me? Is it written for us this morning? And I needed to, I was praying about that this week. Because I really wanted to have something more this morning to say than just good luck. That's how I felt. And I thought, what what does the Bible say about reading the Bible? What does God have to say about men and women who are, who are looking uh, for, in his word for wisdom. These are going to be all New Testament scriptures, but what's interesting, I think we forget sometimes that these scriptures are not talking about the New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament, even this book. So just listen to these. I know that they're familiar, but don't let them pass over your head. This is what God has to say. All scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The one that I needed to hear this week is what we've received 
is not the spirit of the world, but we've received a spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things that God has freely given us. And so my prayer this morning is that we would ask Holy Spirit to help us and apply this wisdom. And I know that his answer to us is yes and amen. So this morning I have two goals when it comes to this text. And I gotta be honest with you, these are not the same goals that I had at eight o'clock last night. All week long I've had this thing burning in my heart related to the Song of Songs. It's something that's really important and uh, just key to the church. It's something that we can't afford to overlook. But it's also something that I'm convinced cannot be done this morning. Someone else could. I, though, am unable to show both sides of this song in one sermon. See, this book is an amazing story that shows the heights of human love. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. But it's also a story that shows the radical pursuit and the love of God our Father, the love that He has for His church. He's after intimacy with His people. It shows His passion for His bride. And I wanted so badly to be able to cover each aspect today. And I really had to grieve last night as I let that second one go. But each one on its own is such a vast topic and is so key to us that we just need to slow down. We're going to take two weeks on this song. And so don't worry, we're going to hit it next week. He doesn't know it yet, but Rod is going to preach on (laughs) Christ, our great bridegroom, and the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's going to pull stuff out of the song of song that shows Christ to be this man. And that's the one that you don't want to miss. But Back to my goals this morning. Today, two things. I want to give a little bit of background and context for this song. What are, what are we reading here? And at the same time, I want to just glean wisdom from the book regarding love. And if I could be candid with you for a second, I just want you to know that I, don't, I feel really inept when it comes to this. Like, if I could pick which one I was going to do, it would be uh, the Christ in the church one. Because I feel like with six years of marriage under my belt, I'm not really an authority on what human love can look like. But I've just been praying for you guys, and I've been praying for myself this morning that, that God would shine through, that he would use me to speak to you, that his word would encourage you this morning. Sound good? I think the first thing that we need to understand, we need to do in order to understand what's going on in this song is just get some basics down. What's the overall story of the book? What's happening? What's the theme? Who are the characters? So we start with the story. And as, again, as I was preparing, I found five different storylines that at least make sense to you as you're reading along with it. And there's countless of others that just seemed really far out there. This is one of those topics that theologians have been arguing about forever. For our purposes today, we're going to use one of the most common commonly accepted outlines for the book. It goes like this. This story, it's about two young lovers making their way to marriage. It starts with these lovers. They're separated, but they're, they're yearning for each other. They're most likely already engaged. They're looking forward to the wedding. The groom is probably off at his father's house preparing a room that he and his bride will live in once they're wed. And she chimes in and says, I miss you. 
And he says, yeah, I miss you too. And she says, where are you? Let me, let me just get a glance of you. It's not fair that all these, these young girls in your town get to stare at you while I'm far off. And he says, our house is coming along. I'm working. The beams are cedars. The rafters are firs. We're, it's, we're almost there. And if you're around engaged couples, you can just picture, you're the best. <laughs> no, you're the best. The woman then, uh, she sleeps, but her heart is awake. It says in chapter 3, on my bed by night I sought him. And we can picture this, right? All the anxieties of this huge life change are coming to the front of her unconscious mind as she sleeps. Is he here? Is he coming? Does he really love me? Can we even make it? Is this even worth it? Is our love the, the real deal? When it comes down to it, I'm scared. The lovers then, they yearn for each other again. He, he answers and says, don't fear. You're the one for me. She says, you're the one for me. I love you. I love you too. And this is where the language gets a little PG-13. He says, no, listen, I love everything about you. And the story ends in climax. It it ends with this, this wedding banquet. It ends with the seal being placed on each other. It ends with a consummation of the marriage, a real I do forever. So there's the story, but who are these players? Who are these, these, this man and who is this woman? Again, I don't know. No one really knows because the text doesn't say. People have made strong arguments that the male character is Solomon and that the female is the king's bride, but I'm not so sure about that. I think what we need to see here is more of a picture And the references to Solomon in chapter 3 and in chapter 8, they're not necessarily direct references to his person, but are instead meant to be seen as idealist. And you might think, well, we know Solomon. How is is he ideal? The text is probably talking about two young uh, Israelites, a shepherd and a shepherdess who again are in love and betrothed to one another and waiting anxiously for that wedding day. In this ideal picture of a man known as Solomon, it's more accurately this idea of Solomon, a.k.a. the perfect man. And for a shepherd of Israel and a shepherdess of Israel, it wouldn't be so far out there to see the Lord's anointed, the richest man in the world, as this ideal picture. But again, I'm really serious when I say that these are topics that are always debated We're always looking for, as humans, answers to questions in the Bible that really I don't think the author is trying to answer instead of looking at the questions that are really there. And while there's no end of things about this song that we just don't know, it shouldn't steer us away from things that this morning we can know. And this morning I want to talk about mainly those things. So what do we know? I'll suggest four things. The first one... And you're going to laugh at me because two of these are just like, duh. But we'll dive into it a little more, I promise. First one, this is a song. We know that. The second one, we know that it's about human love. The third one, 
We know that it's in our Bibles. The fourth one. We know that it's written to teach us wisdom. Put it all together. The Song of Songs is a song about human love found in our Bibles in order to teach us wisdom. For the rest of the morning, I just want to unpack that statement. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The ESV starts, The Song of Solomon. It's not a letter. This is not a book of law or prophecy. This is a song. And it doesn't take much to say, to answer the question, what's the purpose of a song? Songs are meant to be sung, right? But we lose a little bit of the flow and the rhyming scheme when we translate it from Hebrew to English. But those elements of lyrical poetry are there. We need to keep that in mind, that this text was originally written as a song, not something to be broken apart and highlighted and underlined to high heavens. It's meant to be sung. Some commentators even use words such as tenor and alto in chorus instead of he, she, and others. And it's most likely a song that would be sung at weddings in celebration of the bride and groom. And again, I know that's hard for us to think because it's just so not our culture. I just officiated a wedding on Friday night. It was my uh, sister-in-law's wedding. And it would have been really weird. It maybe potentially could have been really awesome, but definitely really weird. If everyone, if the bridal party, if all the guests would have started singing about the love of the bride and the groom. Not only right then, but then the love that's going to happen in a couple hours from now, right? Right, no one wants to hear their mom singing about that or, you know, (laughs) really weird. But our tendency is just to rush this thing into our culture and our context. But I want to not make this thing a Western piece this morning. Let's strive to keep it in its original context. Even more than a song, this is the song of all songs. The language is the same as the Lord of Lords, or the King of Kings. This is the very best of all the songs, the pinnacle of songwriting. And our tendency is to run from alliterations to applications, and from metaphors to meaning, but we need to take a small pause again, and let it be a song. See, songwriting is an art And all the tools of poetry are employed in order to convey meaning in a way that gets your mind going. Allegory, illusion, analogy, ambiguity, euphemism, these are things that help create a picture that statements really can't. And I think you know what I mean, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. That's different than saying God knows what we need and will provide for us. Psalm 23 balances meaning, emotion, picture. And the Song of Songs is meant to do the same. And if you take all that imagery, all that cadence out of it, you lose something that God really intends for us to have. Just like every song, this song has a story, and we talked about the storyline. But what is the theme of this story? Again, we've mentioned that uh, it's about human love. Again, we know that it's about Christ and his church and his desires, and we'll talk about that next week. But for our purposes today, the theme of this song 
is human love. And we know that it's, it's human love set in the context of marriage. And the way that we know that is because in the 900 BCs, there's only two ways to talk about love, really. Um, this guy that I was reading kind of said, tongue-in-cheek, that the sexual revolution of the 1960s hadn't really reached Jerusalem yet. Meaning there's no casual hookups. There's no high fives after one night stands. There's two ways of talking about love. Number one, celebrated love between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And number two, sexual abuse. Slavery, fornication, adultery, rape. And it's pretty obvious to see which one this is. It's, it's celebrated. And it's a little surprising to me how awkward we get around this topic of human love. The Bible is filled with historical accounts of sexual abuse. From Noah to the church at Corinth, we read about sexual immorality, and we read it without a second thought. But here in this song, we have sex being talked about in the context that it should be talked about. We get all squeamish, and we, we shy away from it. And something seems backwards about that to me. I know you can't read this book without blushing at the desire and the affections that these two have for each other. Just listen to some of the language. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. His his love is better than wine because that's what we want our daughters reading, right? Not only sex, but sex and intoxication, right? His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eye. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts are like the clusters of fruit. I will say, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. Maybe just woke up some sleeping teenagers or something. I don't know. For me, after the initial shock of of reading that wears off, I gotta say, it's challenging and it's convicting to me. For those of you who have been married for a while, you might feel like I feel sometimes. With kids, work, a house to fix up, cars that are struggling, sometimes the last thing on my mind is is my pursuit of my wife. But I can still remember back to when we were dating. I'd constantly be thinking to myself, how can I keep this girl interested? What can I do today to show her that I'm really, really into her? But more often than not now, it's a a peck on the way out the door or a I love you before bed. The song calls me, and it should be calling us married couples to something, to step up our game, really, to fan the flame of our love, to think about each other and speak to each other in a way that communicates things, that communicates longing, that communicates desire, that communicates quality. I think those two first things are easy for us to grasp, but that third one, what does that mean? How can we communicate quality? Well, husbands, listen up. Next time, instead of saying, babe, you look beautiful today, let's take a passage right out of Song of Solomon and say, babe, you look just like a horse. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. 
What he's saying though, hold on, come back. What he's saying is, babe, you are the best of the best. You're hand chosen by me. You're the one that I desire. And while that specific language probably won't work out that well in the end, the idea behind it will. Think about things that communicate value, things that communicate honor. Philippians 4 says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And that just hits me right in the chest, right? As a husband, think about these things. After all, it's what your wife is looking for. It's what she wants the most. It's what she needs. One honoring and valuing word from a husband is like a pebble that's dropped into a still pond. These ripples go throughout her entire being. They go throughout her entire day. They unlock her and open her up. It's the same for us husbands. The shepherdess in the song honors her man over and over with language that that softens his heart. Language that tears walls down and language that builds him up. She says, you're the best. There's no one else for me. You're my king. You're the only one I need. And this this is language that, that really I know. It allows us to move towards our wives. We need it. It's a song about human love that's, that's found in our Bible. And that, that piece, while you're saying, yeah, duh, it's right here in our Bibles, to me, it's, it's amazing that it's in our Bibles. Again, it isn't some just like weird man in his basement writing all his facts about love, right? Like he's got it all down. This is God. And God cares about our relationships and our marriages. He gives us wisdom and instruction on how to nurture them. He doesn't just bring two sinners together and say, good luck. He teaches us how to love each other in a fulfilling way. And one of the main ways that the song teaches us to do this is by using language that has resonance throughout all of the Old Testament. Really, throughout all of Scripture. One of the most obvious uses of Old Testament imagery in this song is the garden language that's found right in the middle of it. The bride and the groom sing about their love being like a garden that's, that's enclosed, a garden that's kept safe. You're a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. You're a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. It, it gives you pictures of just lush green. And it reminds us of Eden. The first, truest place of intimacy. A place of nakedness without shame. A place of becoming one. A place where love and purpose and desire and joy and fulfillment, all of the things that you're looking for in your marriage, is perfected. The song reminds me also of a way that a young man named Jacob longed for this young woman named Rachel. He saw her beauty her form. He heard her voice and and he wanted her. 
Show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. His passion and love enabled him to work 14 years for this girl's hand in marriage. It's a picture of love. Not lust, not mindless passion. It's devotion and it's respect. These themes are carried over into the New Testament as well. Honor, love, respect, self-sacrifice. The song teaches us what all of the Bible is really trying to show us. That God has a way. After all, it's the purpose of the song. You're going to get sick of me saying this, I know, but the song is about human love found in the Bible in order to teach you and I wisdom. It's in our canon to show us God's way. We think about wisdom. We've seen it in these books that we're studying this summer. It's almost impossible not to think of this man, Solomon. After all, he's the wisest man to ever live. He was given wisdom as a gift from God. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,005 songs. Most of the book of Proverbs is made up from those 3,000. Dan and Rod gave convincing arguments on how Solomon is most likely the Kohelet, the, the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. And here we read that this is Solomon's Song of Songs. Solomon writing about a young man and a young woman in pursuit of love. And I, I hope you're thinking, like I'm thinking, this is what I was thinking, maybe you're not thinking it. I was thinking, is Solomon really the one that we want to be taking marital advice from? We know that Solomon had 700 wives. We know that he had 300 concubines. First Kings chapter 4 tells us that all of these women, they did what? They led Solomon astray. They led him, his heart away from the Lord. But again, I don't know what to do with it because he's the wisest man ever. And I like that there's a lot of men who are much, much smarter than me writing about these things because I can refer back to them, right? And I agree. I, I think that this makes the most sense that Solomon probably wrote this book as an old man later in his life. Looking back on his adolescence, maybe with a little bit of regret, wanting to warn and encourage young men and women. And so what is the wisdom that he offers us? Maybe you've heard some wisdom about sex from the world. Because the world wants us to believe, popular media wants us to believe, that sex is just a part of life. It's no big deal. That's why we see it in every movie. That's why it's in every TV show. It's on every billboard. It's in every magazine. I read this quote online that said that our biggest sexual education in America right now is millions of hours of downloaded porn. The world says you'll be happier if you're having lots of sex with lots of people. The world says you need to have sex with someone before you marry them. The world says you need to practice in order to be good for your spouse someday. I think the one that really damages people is that there's something seriously wrong with you if you're not having sex. 
That's the wisdom of the world. And the Christian culture has really kicked against this in a not-so-healthy way, I think. We've turned sex into a shameful thing. We scare our young Bible believers away from it rather than teaching them to honor it and respect it and look forward to it. And that's just not the way that Scripture lays it out. Solomon has wisdom for us, and you've probably heard it before. But I want it to be backed by the Word of God. And it doesn't sound radical, but what I'm about to say is radical. Solomon's wisdom is this. Wait. The shepherdess of the song is the main character. She does 70% of the singing. She's singing to a young group of virgin women, the daughters of Jerusalem. These women... They're longing for romance. They're they're longing for a husband. Their bodies, their minds are saying yes. And the shepherdess is saying no. She has a chorus, a repeated theme and a warning to these these young women. But it's not the warnings that the world often gives. She's not saying you'll get pregnant. She's not saying you'll catch something. She's not saying men won't like you if you sleep around. That's not what she's saying. It's different than that. She's saying, what I have is worth waiting for. It's not a negative reinforcement for waiting. It's a positive reinforcement. You wait because there's serious blessing. If you don't wait, you'll miss out what I'm experiencing, not only in anticipation and excitement for the wedding day, but anticipation, excitement for this new life, for the wedding night, for the moving in, the life that we share together, how you wake up one morning as an individual and you go to bed that night as one, two people becoming one. And this chorus, it comes about probably just at the right time, three times in our text. It comes about right as the language is escalating and escalating. And where is this going? Where is this going to end? And she stops and takes a breath and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I urge you, do not awaken love until it so desires. See, as appealing as love and sex can be, it shouldn't be forced, it shouldn't be rushed. And we believe, we've corporately bought into a lie that sex leads to proximity, that that intimacy breeds proximity. And I know a lot of you know this, that that's just not true. Sex, more often than not, it damages relationship, it ends relationship. Sex without that covenant, it does nothing but hinder love. Here's something I want the high schoolers, college students, you young adults who are looking so hard for love and downloading apps and putting profiles out. You need to hear this. The song gives us hope in 2014 that it is still possible to save yourself for marriage. That it's possible to say no to the pressures of the world. Even the pressures and urges that you have within yourself. That while the world mocks virginity, God honors it. I just read this week, this isn't even, like, I wasn't even trying to do this. I just read in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, it says that the things that are exalted among men are an abomination to the Lord. 
And what's more, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you? You were bought with a price by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We need that wisdom to really sink in this morning. We need to allow it to be more than just good advice, more than just uh, a combat or a, a, a kicking against what the world is offering. I want to conclude with this. I know that in a room this size, there's plenty of you who are asking, what if I haven't been that? What if I haven't been sexually pure? What if I haven't waited? What about me? And I want to offer an answer. The answer is this, that God forgives sins through Jesus Christ. That Jesus came for sinners. He lived with sinners. He ate with sinners. He died with sinners. He rose for sinners. And he accepts any sinner who repents and trusts in him. We can come to him and be made whole in him. Psalm 51, 7 says, Cleanse me with hyssop, this deep red, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Come to him. Those of you who have not had sex and are feeling pressured all around, ask God this morning to give you contentment for where you're at. Be real with the way that you talk to him. Share your struggles with him. Share your desires for him. He cares about you. But also a challenge. Maybe start giving your life away. Maybe get out of your own head. Stop thinking about yourself. Maybe invest in a sixth grader who needs your wisdom, who needs your life experience. Tell them what they can expect in junior high and high school. Walk with them. Pray with them. Show them the Bible. Give your life away. Husbands and wives, ask God how he sees your spouse. Ask God how he wants you to see your spouse. Ask for new strategies to recapture his or her heart. Repent from allowing coldness to come between you two. Forgive each other. Move towards each other. This song should be calling us married couples to picnics. It should be calling us to adventure. It should be calling us to love. The world is watching what we do. Do you guys know that? The world has its eyes on us. The world is looking for ways to say, see, you're no different than the rest of us. See this Christ that you're talking about? He makes no difference. Because your life looks just like my life. The way that we treat love and sexuality should point the world to something. And whatever stage of life you're in, you're able to point the world to Christ. Single, unmarried people, you can point the world to Christ by giving him your heart, by giving him your devotion, by not chasing every boy or every girl that comes around. Husbands and wives, we can point the world to Christ by submitting to each other, by laying our lives down, by washing each other with the word, by pursuing Let's pray.
God, I just say, first and foremost, I need your help. (laughs) I need your help, Lord. I pray that you would uh, regenerate that wisdom for me right now. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would, would, um, I know you're present, so I'm not asking you to be present. I'm asking you to soften hearts. I'm asking you to, um, to steer us as we submit ourselves to you. So come, Lord Jesus. Come and show yourself to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.